everybody, and welcome to another beautiful Thursday morning. You're listening to Bhavani at IE Queen on the Progressive Radio Network. And I have a great show for all of you today. Amy Klein will be joining me. She is the CEO of Capital Roots, which is a wonderful nonprofit organization in the Albany area. I'm working really hard to get healthy food into the mouths of people that need it. And she'll tell us more about all the different programs they're running in just a little bit. But first, I want to share with you some things going on in and around the news, um, some ways you can take action, and of course, share this week's recipe with all of you. So first off, um, we I think I share the horror with all of you who are listening at watching war break out in Ukraine. Um, it's really devastating to think that, um, that a country is just going to come in and take over one's country and, you know, make everybody um, take to the streets to either get out of their homes or take up arms to protect their homes. Um, it's really scary what's going on and um, seeing the, all the countries coming together to offer support and to isolate Putin and um, hopefully put enough pressure on him that things will change is a great thing. But meanwhile, you know, my heart is breaking at listening to all the stories. Um, at the same time, I'm really praying that the energy and the will of the Ukrainian people um, perseveres and actually manages to keep the Russian army at bay. And hopefully they will um, turn around and go back home. But we're just watching. It's really um, a really frightening thing. Um, and I do have a link on my website if you feel to give. Um, you know, you can give through um, the International Red Cross um, link. And I have a link on my website where you can do that at the International Committee of the Red Cross, icrc.org. Um, so if you feel moved to do that, please do that. This past week on Monday, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change met. Over 270 scientists came together to raise the alarm on climate change. And I don't know how many times they have to raise this alarm. This alarm has been being raised for many years now. And nations are just moving too slow to do anything about it. Um, you know, they basically are concluding that if we don't do something really fast, we are going to be living on a planet that will be uninhabitable and we will not be living. So we really need to do something about it. This is really serious. Um, and it's just mind boggling that on, you know, the front page of the New York Times, you know, there was an article about the intergovernmental panel on climate change saying we have to make changes. And right below that is an article about um, the Supreme Court not wanting to support um, the EPA in doing what they need to do to create regulations to um, limit to limit um, all the things causing the pollution and create limits on power plants and um, greenhouse gas emissions. And it's just really unbelievable that our country does not, or I should say the conservative people who have power 
are not willing to look at this as a serious issue and do what needs to happen. And so um, I beg all of you to do whatever you can when you see opportunities to take action. Um, I have a petition on my website asking President Biden to adopt a national biodiversity strategy now. And that's a petition to really take up climate change. And, um, you know, right now, you know, everything, those of you listening know that everything is linked together, that the interconnectedness between our food and our environment and our health and biodiversity and animal welfare and animal you know, wild animals and our plant life, it's all connected. And we are just ruining it and we really need to do something about it. And so there's a petition on my website asking President Biden to adopt a national biodiversity strategy now. Um, So please sign that petition. And there's also a petition asking President Biden and Congress to reject the fossil fuel industry who are trying to exploit the crisis in Ukraine right now to expand oil and gas drilling, which we know is just going to be, um, is a no brainer and is going in the wrong direction. So um, please sign these petitions and wherever you can take action, you know, I realize we are all overwhelmed with, with life. There's so much stuff going on and we all can't do everything, but we all can do something and everyone needs to take one area that they're passionate about and sign the petitions, write the letters, join a protest. Um, speaking of protests coming up um, next week, March 8th, there's buses going up to Albany um, for a protest. So that's worth joining in as well um, for climate change. So please, everyone, figure out where your passions are and do something to try to help turn this world around. We really need to come together and make this a better place. Um, I want to share with you this week's recipe. It's a vegan cream of mushroom leek soup, which is just so delicious. It has a lot of umami flavor with all the earthy mushrooms in there. Um, I use both a mixture of dried wild mushrooms that I um, reconstitute and blend up. And then I use fresh mushrooms in after I've creamed the soup, fresh mushrooms as garnish on the top of the soup. And it's just really a great, great dish. And serve it with some crusty bread and it's a meal all by itself. So um, these are the ingredients. A quarter cup of olive oil, four cups of sliced shiitake mushrooms, two cups of sliced bellow mushrooms. And feel free to do whatever mushroom mixture you'd like, but you want to end up with about six cups of sliced mushrooms three cups of dried mushrooms that you're going to soak, one onion chopped, two leeks chopped, two shallots chopped, two carrots chopped, one celery chopped, two tablespoons minced garlic. And when I say chopped, you're going to end up pureeing it all. So it doesn't matter how fine you chop it. It's just um, how long it's going to take to get soft before you can puree it. So the smaller you chop it, um, the quicker that will happen. One tablespoon of herbs de Provence, one tablespoon of fresh tarragon chopped, a half a cup of white miso, a cup of coconut milk, one teaspoon of salt plus a half a teaspoon of white pepper, a cup of cashews that you're also going to soak, four cups of vegetable stock and four cups of water. That's what I used. If you want to use all vegetable stock, eight cups of vegetable stock, you can do that. A cup of port wine, 
a tablespoon of tamari and fresh chopped parsley for the garnish. And um, you're gonna start by putting the cup of cashews into a Pyrex measuring cup and pour some boiling water over it and let that sit for about an hour. And put the three cups of dried mushrooms into a four cup Pyrex measuring cup and cover that with boiling water. Then either cover it with a plate or I covered it with some plastic wrap just so it can all steam in there and let that sit for about 30 minutes. Meanwhile, in a large stock pot, you're gonna saute the leeks, shallots, carrots, celery, and onions with the tablespoon of minced garlic and cook that for about 15 minutes until soft. Pour the soaked mushrooms into a strainer over a container so that you can reserve the soaking liquid. Chop the mushrooms and add that to the pot with the other vegetables. Saute that for about 10 minutes, adding some of the mushroom liquid back into the pot to keep it from sticking. Um, that way you don't have to add any more oil. You can also add the tarragon and the herbs, the Provence, the salt and pepper at this time, and let that cook down for about 10 minutes. Meanwhile, in a heavy saute pan, you can saute the mushrooms in a little olive oil with the, another tablespoon of garlic. And when those are soft, add a quarter cup of port wine and a tablespoon of tamari and cook that for a few more minutes until all the liquid is absorbed and set that aside. Remove the stock pot from the heat and with an immersion blender, puree the vegetables. Add the white miso and the coconut milk and blend that some more. Drain the cashews and make a, um, a cream with that. You know, So I use a little mini blender or you can use a food processor and puree the cashews with a cup of water until smooth and add that to the soup. Then you're gonna return the soup to the stove, add the vegetable stock in the water, um, mix it all up and bring it just under a boil. Since you added the miso, you don't wanna let it boil if you can avoid that. Adjust the salt and pepper to taste and that's it. You're gonna ladle the soup into bowls, garnish it with the sauteed mushrooms and the chopped parsley and that's it. It makes about 16 cups of soup here. Um, and serves eight to 10 people. So enjoy, you can cut the recipe in half, of course, if that's too much for you, but it does also freeze well. So you can freeze some of it if you'd like. And now it's my pleasure to introduce all of you to Amy Klein. As I said before, she's the CEO of Capital Roots and um, Capital Roots is a nonprofit management company. Um, and Amy has 35 years of professional experience in nonprofit management, strategic planning, program development, fundraising, and financial oversight. And as the executive officer at Capital Roots, she spearheads the 45-year-old nonprofit's mission to nourish healthy communities by providing access to fresh food and green spaces for all. Since joining Capital Roots in 1996, she has launched 10 new programs that increase access to fresh, affordable food in the Albany region, um, especially in the underserved neighborhoods. And she's expanded the nonprofit's geographical reach to include four counties. She currently oversees 32 staff members who work to implement the various programs that have been created under her leadership. And I'm really excited to have you here with me, Amy. Thanks for joining me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Sure. So maybe you could, um, we could start by you just telling us how did you come to um, be passionate about the work that you're doing and how did you come to Capital Roots? 
sure. Yeah. So I have spent my entire career in the nonprofit world. I started out at the national level working for civil liberties and environmental organizations and uh, working in Washington, D.C. And I moved to the capital region of New York in uh 1991, and I worked for a statewide environmental organization. And um, when this opportunity presented itself, it was quite a departure from working at the national or state level, because this was very grassroots, uh, very much, um, you know, on the ground um, and working directly with people who are experiencing um, you know, environmental struggles, uh, food security issues. And it was very intriguing to me to be able to work at that kind of um, that grassroots level. Uh, at the same time, the organization was very small. Um, there was only one other staff person and there was oh. a question about whether the organization was going to continue. And uh, so the, the board was uh, basically deciding whether to hire a new executive director or whether to shut the doors. And uh, I, I saw it as a great challenge and a great opportunity uh, to work in the community. And um, I always loved gardening since I was a child and uh, working alongside my grandmother. And at the time the organization was a community gardening organization. That's what we did uh, pretty much exclusively. And uh, so it seemed like a great fit for me. And um, the rest has evolved over the last 25 years for me. Uh, you know, I've been here, this is my 25th year. And so it's been a really um, amazing journey that I have been able to take along with the organization and the community and um, that we continue to take. Yeah. Well, it's amazing what you've done in your 25 years from one other staff person to now having 32 people under you and you have over 10 programs that you run, which we will get into in just a little bit. Um, but it's just amazing. So thank you for your work because we know it's so needed. Um, so you started 25 years ago and at that time there was just one person. What was the main mission of Capital Roots at that time and how has that mission changed? So our mission uh, back then was uh, to build and manage neighborhood food gardens, uh, community gardens. We are uh, one of the oldest community garden organizations in the country. And we were started by Gardenway, who uh, manufactured tri-built rototillers. And the, the founder of our organization, Dean Leith, um, who loved gardening, um, wanted to give other people the opportunity to grow their own food. And so he created this organization as a way to um, help people who lived in city neighborhoods who didn't have access to growing space uh, to provide them with that opportunity. And so as an organization back in um, you know the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that's what we did. We created um, spaces and we manage them for people to grow their own food um, in secure spaces with assistance, uh, providing all the tools that people needed, except for the hard work of gardening, which if anybody's a gardener, they know it's a lot of hard work, but you can reap tremendous um, benefits in terms of putting 
quality food on your table um, that can last, you know, much more than the growing season. And so helping people learn how to do basic preservation. And um, we're also an urban land trust. So we preserve these uh, gardens forever. So it's not just sort of a pop-up thing where, oh, there's a piece of land, we're going to garden it for a year or two and then development's going to come along and take it away so this is really a permanent uh, way to create green spaces in urban areas which desperately need those green spaces and these are working green spaces so that's that's who this organization was for the first uh 20 years of its existence um and the how many community gardens do you have now we have 55 now. Wow. Uh, when I started, we had 13. Um, and we serve about 4,000 people with those community gardens. About 4,000 people are benefiting from the food that they are able to grow in those community gardens. And, you know, as equally important is the land preservation aspect of that. So these are, you know, important green spaces within city neighborhoods that, you know, when I first started, it used to be pretty easy to get a small piece of land um, up here in upstate New York within one of our cities that you could purchase. I mean, we could purchase a piece of land, uh, a parcel for a couple hundred bucks. Now it, that's not possible anymore. So the fact that we were able to accumulate as many as we were during those times really makes a huge difference to the urban landscape. Mm -hmm. And um, you had to purchase them. Do you own them now? Like, are they your spaces or can the city take them back at some point? No, and that's the idea of being an urban land trust. So we, we own most of those gardens and uh, they are forever preserved as spaces for the community to grow food. So we, we have a policy, first of all, that we will never um, develop a community garden on privately owned space anymore because of the fact that it's too easily taken back by development. Um, and there's quite an investment to build a community garden financially, but maybe even more importantly, the investment that the gardeners make of their time and energy and the heart that they put into it. And it's really devastating when they lose their gardening space. So we don't want to see that happen. Um, so we, the gardens that we have are either owned by us or we do have um, gardens in parkland because parks are much more difficult, although not impe impenetrable, from uh, being taken back by the government. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So, so needed. So um, can you share with us some of the programs you're doing now? I mean, you know, back then it was just 13 community gardens, right? Now, yes. now you have... 55 gardens and that's just a small part of all the different things that you're doing so um yeah. one of the projects that really interested me when i was looking at your website was um the produce project can you talk yeah, about so, that yeah sure um i'll sort of take you through the journey of how the organization evolved um right. uh you know we were building community <laughs> gardens at a pretty fast clip 
because of the demand for gardening space and also what was happening in our region, which is not atypical from what was happening in many urban, urban you know, uh, areas, was supermarkets were leaving our communities. And what that meant is that people didn't have easy access to fresh quality food. And even though we were building many gardens, we realized that that was not going to be a solution for everybody. Not everybody was going to be able to grow their own food. And uh, yet, you know, people, because we saw how hard people were willing to work to grow their own fresh food, we knew that there was a desire to eat well. And this was back before the term food desert was um, coined, before the USDA was talking about food deserts before really people were, were even aware of these issues. And so we were, we were seeing this on the ground and we wanted to come up with other solutions to bring uh, fresh produce into the community in other ways, to give people more opportunity to access fresh produce. Uh, at the time, uh, food pantries and soup kitchens and shelters were also not distributing fresh produce. So that's another was another big difference between now and then. Um, it, it just wasn't done, and and the concept or the the thought process on the part of food pantries was that uh, the people who they served did not want fresh produce. Again, we knew that wasn't true because people were working hard to grow it and, and we knew that they did want it. So the first program we developed was our squash hunger program. And that was a way to infuse more fresh produce into the emergency food uh, provider network through food pantries and soup kitchens and shelters. And that was through uh, gleanings in farm fields. So we have a whole network of volunteers that uh, work with our farm partners and are able to glean top quality food when farmers have excess. Uh, we also work with our local distributors who have excess. And we have a whole web of, of volunteers that really um, make the Squash Hunger Program possible, who are um, collecting and redistributing fresh food uh, from providers into the emergency food system. So it's a way to get that quality food to um, people in need. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was the first one we created. And then the next piece uh, was really transformative, <laughs> not just for us as an organization, but I think, but it was on a nationwide scale, uh, was when we created the Veggie Mobile. It was the first mobile produce market in the country, <clears throat> and it served as a model for um, mobile produce uh, around the country. And so the concept of the Veggie Mobile and our second called the Veggie Mobile Sprout is that it has a regular schedule. It is on the road year round. Uh, we sell produce at half the cost of what people could buy it for in the supermarket, but it's top quality. People can use all their benefit programs. So, you know, food stamps, everything else and people are able to access what they want with dignity uh, in their neighborhoods. So we go into the neighborhoods um, that are currently not served by, by food markets and uh, give people the opportunity to you know, serve themselves in that way and 
purchase food like anybody else is able to and wants to, but at a low cost with top quality. Yeah, I was looking at your schedule. It's unbelievable. You, you're going to so many places and you stay in places only for a half an hour or 45 minutes. Do, are there lines there when you get there? Are like people waiting for that? And <clears throat> how many people do you serve? Yeah, you know, especially the senior locations, there are definitely lines um, that, you know, the very first stop that we, when we started the Veggie Mobile was a senior location and people were lined up waiting for us. And that's, you know, been true uh, ever since. The seniors are especially grateful for the service, not just because of the the food that it provides them, the fresh produce and the opportunity to use their, um, you know, food stamp benefits, but also the socialization, um, the the way our, our staff, um, you know, connects with the seniors and, um, you know, it, it really is a tremendous opportunity uh, on a weekly basis to have that um, social connection. And we never anticipated that aspect of what the Veggie Mobile would bring into community, but it's really been um, an amazing piece of the program, that that social piece. Um, so, you know, we we have longer stops depending on the number of customers. Uh, we have shorter stops if, you know, if we sort of uh, modify things according to uh, how many customers and, you know, trying to add more locations. So we want to try to get to as many places as we can, but also serve customers, you know, as, you know, as, as well as we can in, in those locations. So that's our, how goal. many mobiles do you have? We have two. two. Uh, yep. Right now uh -huh. that's that. And, and they serve four counties, um, in the capital region. Uh-huh. You know, um, the social connection that you were talking about, you know, anyone who's, you know, really up on reading all the articles that are out there, you know, they talk about loneliness as being one of the most deadliest um, conditions for people, especially as they become older. Um, yeah. Isolation and loneliness, and especially during this pandemic um, period, it's been really, really amazing. And so I can yeah. imagine how that social connection really especially in these last two years has been tremendous. It has, and you know, our seniors, I mean, everybody, you know, we continue to operate through this pandemic and um, because we were already mobile, uh, we didn't have to make uh, modifications to that aspect. What we had to do was figure out how to keep everyone safe and healthy uh, because we were dealing with vulnerable populations like seniors. And so, you know, how could we make sure that everybody was going to be safe? And, and what that required was more staff um, to be working the mobile markets so that we could keep social distancing and um, take people's orders and, you know, all of that. So it, it really um, it expanded the, um, the, the need for how we were providing the services, but we, we made sure that our seniors and all of our other uh, customers were served and throughout this pandemic and that we were creative in how they, they got those services. Um, and it has been really important to keep those connections, maintain those connections. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, years ago, um, 
the Suffolk County Food Policy Council, which is down on Long Island where I'm living, you know, I was a part of that group and they were doing a pilot program trying to bring um, fresh produce into some of the um, corner stores, you know, and I see that you have that healthy store program. Yep. And this was a pilot program. It took a year to get one store to sell vegetables and to get, you know, signage for them and to get the word out and, you know, and it, it took forever. And, um, you know, and I see that you have this program. How many stores are you servicing in this program and how do you get it up and going? Yeah. And that was the next program that we developed after our mobile markets, after the veggie mobiles. And, you know, it was a way to give 24 seven, uh, presence to fresh food in the same neighborhoods. It is a very challenging program. Uh, others have tried and not been able to succeed with a healthy stores program. Um, and there are lots of reasons why <laughs> that, um, you know, I can go into, but, uh, we have 20 locations and it's a very fluid program. Stores leave and come into the program. We have had many that have been with our program since it began in 2011. Um, but, um, it's so important the, you know, from my perspective, these stores, are the answer to true food security in the neighborhoods that we're looking to serve. Uh, A lot of people have been, you know, for many years trying to figure out how to bring supermarkets back to the neighborhoods um, that are, you know, food deserts. I firmly believe that's not going to happen. It doesn't fit the model of supermarkets today. Um, You know, supermarkets are, super. (laughs) They're super sized and that's why they're in suburban areas for them to be able to maximize their profits and they're just not geared toward small locations. But these, you know, corner markets are already in existence and we need to figure out how to better service them and their needs so that they can be servicing the community. And those are, um, you know, we're doing that with our existing corner store program where we provide them with the refrigeration and the marketing materials and the distribution. So we distribute on a weekly and biweekly basis the produce to them. We bring it to them. We sell it to them at cost. So we don't mark up the product and then we give them a price that they can sell it at that is still a very... Uh, low cost to the consumer. So we know customers are getting a good price product. So you don't see bananas being sold for a dollar in a corner store that works with us. Um, but they need, they need more these stores. They need more help and incentives. And if, you know, if we're really serious about um, providing a solution to food security and to um, end food deserts in our communities. This this is where we need to put our effort, and this is where Capital Roots is focusing going forward, is putting our efforts in this space. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm sure others are wondering, where do you get your funding from? Because if you're providing refrigeration, you know, it's one thing to provide the vegetables, but then if you're also providing the refrigeration and any of the marketing tools or any of that that goes into it, we know how expensive that is. Um, where do you get your funding? 
Yeah, so we, you know, we don't have any big funding stream. We cob it together like many other nonprofit organizations. We have fundraising events. We rely on donors. Um, we do have um, a grant from the New York State Health Department that, you know, understands that uh, health is tied to, you know, the importance of quality food and healthy eating and access to good food. And, you know, we're fortunate that our health department here in New York saw that years ago, long before the federal government understood, you know, what preventative health looked like and that it's not just about checking your blood pressure, but it's really about making sure people could access good food. Um, and, you know, we as a society need to invest more in those types of preventative health um, concepts and not just be focused on the other end of health. You know, how do we deal with disease, uh, but really how are we helping people uh, get the resources that they need to be healthy, to stay healthy, and not in a preachy way, like, let me teach you how to be healthy, right. but uh, because we spend a lot of resources as a society doing that, trying to teach people and tell people. Um, and, you know, what we find is that's not necessary. People know um, they don't need to be taught how to shop in a supermarket, and you'd be surprised how much money goes into that uh, from the government. They need uh, access. They need access and affordability uh, in terms of good food. Yeah. I always say that, you know, if our government was actually paying for our health care, <laughs> then they'd be incentivized to get us all healthy. You know, but right now um, our food system, you know, supports bad health and supports the hospitals and the medical establishment. And, you know, it's all connected. Um, you know, there's not that incentive to get everybody healthy. Well, and I think there's I would... also a lack of understanding, truly, uh, of what the needs are um, at at the community level. There, you know, and this this goes for providers too. You know, I, I mentioned, you know, for a long time in emergency food programs like food pantries, there was the belief that people didn't want to eat fresh food. They didn't want to eat fresh produce, and you know, that was just a complete misunderstanding of what consumers wanted and needed. And so, you know, we need to open our minds and really stop looking at um, people who have uh, less as other, right? We need to be looking at people who have less as the same, except they have less. So they have the same desires as we do. You know, we want to eat good food. Everybody wants to eat good food, except mm -hmm. people have less resources to do that. Mm -hmm. Although d different people have different ideas of what good food is. I mean, look at, you know, a lot of people eat fast food because they really like it, right? They really want the fast food, even yeah, though it's unhealthy. Yeah, but that is true of everybody. <laughs> You know, there are people who are educated, who have resources, who eat fast food because they like it. It's not a low income phenomenon. What is what is, you know, more typical in terms of low income is that it's affordable and it's accessible. It's on every corner in low income neighborhoods, whereas it's much harder to get fruits and vegetables and fruits and vegetables are typically more expensive. 
So we really need to understand what the barriers are um, and see see each other as the same and not as other. Right, right. I think you're right as far as that goes, for sure. So um, one way that you also are working is really starting with kids when they're young. You know, you're going Mm -hmm. into the schools and you have a couple different programs for that. You have farm to school, but you also have the good taste series. Can you tell us about your farm to school programs and what the difference of those two programs are? Yeah, so our farm to school program is uh, essentially about getting good food into our school cafeterias, uh, good local food. Um, You know, the idea that as the second largest apple producer in the country, our, you know, kids in New York State are not eating New York State apples, for example, is crazy. Um, so especially here in upstate New York, why would they be eating apples from Washington County, Washington state instead of, you know, upstate New York? Um, so, you know, we really need to do a better job of connecting our, our farms and our schools so that students are able to eat good quality food, uh, from the farm. And that's something that we do. We make those connections. We make it possible for schools to be able to purchase uh, local food to serve uh, to students in their cafeterias. And, you know, again, this is one of those situations where people think, oh, kids don't want to eat it. They do if it's good, you know. Um, so, and apples again are the perfect example. Uh, you know, all you need to do is put out a good bowl of apples, local apples, and they they eat them. They don't need them treated in any special way. They will just bite into it and eat it. And we see that every day. Um, so, you know, that's what that program is about, and it's it's important for our farmers too. Our farmers need. Um, the support they these are not big farms that we have here and they they need to be supported Um, so this is a way to you know increase the opportunity for our small and medium-sized farms Mm -hmm. Um, our taste good series is our nutrition education program where we go into schools um, and give young children, uh, pre-K through second grade, an opportunity to taste and learn about uh, fruits and vegetables at an age where they're very open to trying and um, experimenting with different fruits and vegetables. And then we have aspects of that program that are brought home so that, um, you know, those lessons can continue at home. Uh, and more importantly, the action of uh, acquiring those fruits and vegetables can be brought home because, you know, one of the things that we often say is kids don't do the grocery shopping. <laughs> so, you know, we have kids shouting in the classrooms, I love broccoli. But if, you know, the parents don't understand that the kids love broccoli and want to eat broccoli, then there's not going to be any broccoli on the table at home. So, you know, it's important to make those connections back to the household um, that that's happening and mm-hmm. that that the students are, are really excited about eating different fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Um, so that's, then, that's for the younger kids, the pre-K to um, second grade. Does your farm to school program also have some nutrition education components for the older kids or you feel like by the time they get older, they're done? 
we do some tastings in the schools with farm to school um but you know typically it's not needed to uh for to get the students to eat the offerings that are on the cafeteria line that's what we find and so when the schools ask for that we do it um but we don't get a lot of requests for that to be honest um so you know i think it's another area where where people think that's needed um at that level and it's it's not always needed so you know we go where the need is in terms of what um what's needed in in the schools um you had mentioned our protus project which is uh, a very deep dive um education and job readiness program job and life skill training program and that's for teenagers uh, we operate a two and a half acre farm and it's it as i said a job and life skill readiness program uh, for local teens they work on the farm after school and uh, during the summer they earn a stipend for their work a food share they take home to their family and school credit and um, it, the program is really about teaching those basic life skills and job readiness skills so they learn interviewing skills, they build a resume, they learn about what it's like to show up to a job on time, how to uh, deal with conflict in the workplace, conflict resolution with coworkers, how to express yourself, uh, how to communicate. They sell their produce at our farm stands, so they're doing marketing and communication. They learn life skills such as cooking and um, uh, financial management. So it's a very deep dive program in terms of, you know, all around, um, you know, assistance. Uh, they get a healthy snack every day. They cook meals together and share meals together. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really a wonderful program to uh, elevate our teens and move them toward first and foremost graduating from high school. We we work very closely with the high school to make sure they're attending school, that their grades are staying, um, you know, as they should be getting them assistance if they need that for their their schoolwork. And um, and then, you know, working with them if they're interested in higher education or some other, uh, whether it's future employment or some other kind of job training going forward. That's awesome. And so you sell it at a farmer's market. Do you have a farm stand at just one farmer's market or are you in many? Um, how does that go? They have a farm stand at their at the farm. The farm is located uh, in um, in directly in the urban in, environment and it's in one of our low income neighborhoods. And so um, they have a farm stand that they set up twice a week at their farm. And, you know, it's embedded in the neighborhood, which is a very important piece of, you know, their working in community. That's great. That's great. Um, and you also have a veggie prescription program. Um, I've been see reading more and more about you know, veggie prescription programs as pilot programs down here in the city area. Um, how established is your program and um, how connected are you to the actual doctors that are doing that? Yeah, so our program started in uh, 2011. So it's been around for quite a while and it's in direct partnership with the um, health, 
health providers. They um, prescribe our uh, VEGRX vouchers to patients directly who are either suffering from or um, are, you know, potential to suffer from uh, diabetes, uh, coronary heart disease, and um, then they are able to redeem their uh, VEGRX prescriptions on our mobile markets. Um, the other uh, element is in order to get their next booklet of vouchers, they need to come back and do a quarterly visit with their physician because you know of their chronic disease status or their potential chronic disease status. And it's been uh, found by health providers that this is one of the best incentives they've ever had to get them to come back for quarterly visits, which is so important, especially for diabetics. Uh, for to have them have that follow-up care on a regular basis. So it's not just the eating of uh, good food, but it's that you know follow-up care that is also a really important component of our VEGRX program. And how big is that program? Because like I said, it's a pilot program down here in the city and it's really very, quite small. I think it, it needs to grow quite a bit to really have an impact. Um, yeah. And yours has been around for a while. So do you know how yeah, many and, people? Well, ours, you know, remains quite small, too. There again, there's not the funding for it. Um, we have 50 people um, and, you know, it's it's proven to be a tremendous success. And yet it's one of those programs that we've struggled to find, you know, funding to expand. Um, so I think. You know, I think we we need to think as a society about how we want to support our healthcare, right? And and what's important and what makes sense. Um, so, and we've done a couple of studies on our program, and it's proven to reduce BMI and and you know other heart other indicators of um, of health. And um, so. It, the results are there. Um, you know, when we first started, people were like, well, we need the result. We need survey, study results, you know, which is, <laughs> we're doing the work here. We're, you know, we're not researchers, but um, we partnered with researchers. We got, you know, research done. And, um, but even still, you know, the funding is still not there. Yeah. You know, they want the data, but you give them the data. I mean, look at what I was talking about with climate change. You, they, there's so much data, but they just yep. want to ignore it if it doesn't fit in with their um, agenda. So yeah, it's frustrating, I'm sure, for you as well. So what are some of the biggest struggles Capital Roots deals with? Um, I would say funding, funding. is always, <laughs> you know, um, you know, when we started out, or when I started out here, I should say our budget was teeny tiny. And as I said, we were, you know, it was a question of whether we were going to stay open. Um, you know, we're not, we're not in that place anymore, thank God. But, um, you know, every year we're, we're still, you know, struggling for dollars, which is not atypical for many nonprofits, but you know, uh, people love the programs. They they love the outcomes. They love what they're seeing and appreciate the value that we're bringing to the community. 
Um, and yet the dollars don't always flow in that direction. And so, um, you know, that's hard. Um, that's hard to contend with on a, you know, regular basis. Um, uh, but you know, what keeps us going is the, the value of the work that we're doing every day. And, you know, the response that we get from the community, the, the people that we're working with and uh, knowing that we're making a difference one person at a time. And, and that's always been what, what it's about for us. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll continue to, to trudge on. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I'm looking at all the different programs you have and you run and yet you only have 32 employees. How do you manage it all? That's the tightrope. Yep. <laughs> it's funny because I've had, I've had uh, CEOs of larger organizations come here, you know, and, and learn about our organization. And that's the first thing that they asked me because, you know, we are woefully understaffed for the number of programs and, and the number of people that we serve in the community and the, the sphere that we're working in and, you know, the number of, consumers and counties and farms and all of those things. Um, and it's hard. I mean, our staff is pressed to the wall on a regular basis and beyond. Um, but uh, you, you can't hire more staff if you don't have the resources. Right, right. Um, now, I see you also have a smart vending program. What is that? So, um, you know, that's the idea of um, trying to give everyone options for healthy food. You know, we, we try never to be preachy about food. Um, you know, everybody, everybody has their own thing, right? But um, you just, we want people to have options and information. One of the things about vending machines that is kind of uh, difficult is you can't see the information. It's behind glass, right? So even if you're trying to eat um, well, you, you don't know what the nutritional information is on the packaging because it's behind glass. So working with, we have a, a vending company that um, uh, provides uh, high quality snacks. And so uh, we install those in workplaces and community settings. Uh, but also working with existing vending companies to indicate which are better choices um, so that people know, since they can't see what the nutritional information is on snacks, uh, which are the better choices for them. Um, and again, you know, it's not, you know, hey, don't eat that candy bar because, hey, who doesn't love a candy bar? <laughs> But, you know, if you're if you are trying to make a, a healthier decision, you can have that information and uh, and that you might not otherwise have. Yeah. Yeah. One of the feedbacks, you know, I, I was a, the farm to school coordinator down here at Glencove Public School. And one of the um, feedbacks I used to hear was that they make the you know, they've reconfigured a lot of the snacks to be healthier for school. But they look the same or very close to the same as the branding of the unhealthy options. And so kids, you know, see uh, Fritos or Cheetos or whatever they are at school and that's okay for them to eat at school. Then they go to the corner store and they want the same thing, but it's not the same thing. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So I think that's, you know, always a frustrating um, reality for a lot of the people involved with the farm to school, you know, nutritional programs, trying to make it healthier. Um, you know, they always say branding and recognition is so important to, you know, you want to hook everybody when they're young so they have um, consumer loyalty. Yeah. But if you're getting them loyal to something that's healthier and then when they're out in the public, it's unhealthier, it's really a mixed message. Yeah. I don't know what the solution is, but. Vending in school is very difficult because a lot of schools get kickbacks from the vending companies and, you know, to support programming and they're not willing to give that up. So um, that's a sphere that is very challenging to work in. You know, some some schools have gotten rid of vending altogether, which is fabulous and, you know, good for them. Others, like I said, they're, you know, they're reaping they're, they're benefiting monetarily off of the vending machines and, um, you know, they, and they need those resources for, to keep programming going. So, right. Right. Although Coca-Cola makes Dasani, right. Water, you know, I mean, they, you know, all these bad companies all because the health food market is such a growing market. They all have some aspect of that at this point. So, you know, yeah. even the, big players, whether it's Coke or Nestle or any of them, could provide healthier choices for a vending machine if if there yeah. was incentive to do so. Yeah, um, you just have to get, get uh, some good PTA folks uh, advocating for that. Yeah, yeah. So um, where do you see your organization going in the next five years? Well, we broke ground in December on uh, an expansion and uh, which will open the end of November and it will include a commercial grade kitchen to incubate food-based businesses. It's also gonna be um, provide a, a new marketplace uh, in our neighborhood. Uh, we currently have a small market inside our facility here, but this is gonna provide a, a much larger footprint of a market and um, we're also building a second food hub. We have a food hub here now, which um, acts as an aggregation and distribution point for uh, farms in our 11 county region and then redistribution out um, around the capital region to um, all kinds of institutions like childcare facilities and senior centers and so on so that more uh, fresh and local food can get out to constituents all over the area. And so we've maxed out our facility now and, and we're building a second one so that we can continue to expand that, you know, distribution of local food um, to more institutions in the area. So that's that's a big thing that's next up for us is, is mm. expanding in those areas. And as I said earlier, um, really working on this uh, network of small stores in urban spaces and how we can support those stores so that they can support the communities that they're embedded in. Mm -hmm. And I know you work with all local farmers. Um, do you specify any local farmers that are organic versus not organic or are most of the farmers that you're working with um, growing sustainably? 
So, um, you know, we don't specify organic. A lot of our farmers are, are growing uh, sustainably, but might not be um, certified organic. Right. You know, so that's a that's a challenge. Um, our consumers are very happy to pay a little bit more for local over, um, you know, uh non-local, but are not always willing to pay more for organic over not organic. So, you know, we have to be mindful of our consumer base and their financial needs. Um, but we, you know, our goal is really to support as many farms as we can in our radius, uh, which, as I said, is 11 counties. So many are organic. Not all of them are. Many are growing sustainably. Um, and, you know, that's that's our focus. And at your community gardens, I assume that you um, encourage organic growing. Exactly. Again, we, they're not certified, but we don't allow any chemicals um, or chemical fertilizers to be used inside the community gardens. We teach organic growing methods and, um, you know, how to sustain your soil and deal with pests in an organic matter. And, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons for that. One is these are small spaces and they could easily turn into toxic waste dumps if people just start spraying stuff all over the place. And two, they're not needed and they're expensive. Um, and so we try to be practical about these things. Also talking to people about the practicality of why you don't need, you know, chemicals. Um, again, instead of being preachy about it, you know, you don't need these things. And here are easy ways that don't cost um, money that you can, you know, create a solution um, that will take care of your needs. Wow, I can't believe we're just about out of time. So um, before we end, can you just share with my listeners um, how they would find out more about Capital Roots and if they want to make a donation to your organization, where they would do that? Yeah, thank you. So uh, our website is capitalroots.org. Uh, it's capital with an A. Um, and uh, we're on so all the social media challenges channels. So follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Check us out. Uh, got a lot of great information out there. Thank you. Thank you, Amy, for joining me today. Um, your organization is awesome. Um, we need one of those down here. <laughs> there are other organizations, but the work you're doing is just amazing. You have your hands on so many different, um, in, in so many different areas. So thank you so much for revitalizing Capital Roots and saving them from going under and thank you. expanding them and doing all the wonderful work you've done. And everyone out there who's been listening, thank you for joining us. Have a great rest of the week, and I'll see you all again next week. Bye for now. <laughs>